Hey everyone. Since we started this show, we realized that we've changed from our original fun with using the rules to break the game. And the more we chat about D&D 5th edition rules with all of our guests, we've realized that we love using the rules to make our games actually better. Now, instead of seeing loopholes for exploits, we see opportunities for creative solutions to challenges. And when some people hear rules as written, it does conjure images of rules lawyers and a denial to the rule of cool. Our hope is that by sharing how to apply, adapt, and improve the rules, you can make your games more fun for players and for DMs alike. So, thanks for joining us. Hi, this is Bethany. I'm one of the players in our actual play campaign and one of the hosts of Rules is Written. Hey, this is Tony. I'm the dungeon master for the two campaigns that we have going and also a host on Rules is Written. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm one of the players in one of the actual plays, and I am a new co-host on D&D Raw. You can find D&D Raw on all of your favorite podcatchers. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at Rules is Written, or you can email us directly at dm at dndraw.com. And please, you can also join us on Discord. We'll make sure to post the link in the description. So today, we're going to be talking about mystics and psionics in D&D 5th edition. Where did they come from? Where did they go? And what can we do to fix it? As our guest, we have Jackie, also known as Death by Mage. Jackie, where can people find you? Hi, everybody. People can find me on Twitter. I frequently am always on there commentating about something, or I'm sharing wonderful projects from the indie TTRPG community. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Death by Mage. Uh, if you need any kind of business inquiries, you can also email me at arcmage at deathbymage.com. That's my business email. And um, you can also find me occasionally on, um, on e- the first of every... Saturday of the month on uh, Asian Represents, where we do uh, uh, Asian reads on Korator, uh, the Eastern Kingdoms, the AD&D version, where we uh, look at some content and try to see if uh, there's anything we can either do to improve it or make any commentary about it. And I am also the creative lead uh, for Unbreakable Publishers, where we publish uh, Asian-owned voices TTRPG stories. So we had volume one released in 2020, and we have four more volumes coming out in 2021. Yeah, uh, like, reading over the orders, they all look really cool. Me playing just a normal mark. I love teleporting, so Nomad is immediately up my alley. Awakened, Belinda has proven, is wonderful in intrigue campaigns. Yes, which is partly why I built this character to be most useful most of the time outside of combat, where it's like, oh, we have a problem. I have a potential solution. Let me just rewrite their mind for a day or so. <laughs> Either they, I learn all the information I need to know as long as it's been recent, or I'll just make them believe something. <laughs> to be clear, we do. Cl- that's why that this is dubious ethically <laughs> with my <laughs> yes. character. Not a good heroic type, really. Just sort of like, hey, it's we're getting the stuff done, so let's not question how we're doing that. There's definitely going to be no downside to having mess with people's minds a lot. Immortal is really good for just, I am the perfection of physicality. The immortal is your superhero. You're just a superhero. Sorry, like, if she really wanted, you can't hurt her. Not really. I know Mike was trying to get to this earlier. What went wrong? We've talked about the third version. There is no fourth version. So the first one was 2015, version three was 2017, 
They had a survey. We completed the survey. And then there was nothing. <laughs> Three years of silence. I mean, they, they did, you know, talk about introducing elements to the other classes. And then April 14th, 2020 was the day the mystic died. Where they basically just said, yeah, we don't want to anymore. <laughs> which is which is hilarious because it was three years of absolute silence, like nothing. If you venture through different parts of the community, whether it be on Reddit, Twitter, anywhere really, like there's always an occasional person who just goes, hey, did anyone ever improve on the Mystic or get back about it? And and it, it was a, it's a question that kept coming up for like at least a good two years. For And then 2020 came around... I remember when I saw that article, I went, wow, that's a, that's been a long time, everyone. The short reason they gave is because uh, they said it encroached on other classes' territory and that it was often too complex, too com- too powerful, or both. And players gave us feedback they didn't like it anyways. Most of the feedback and comments I saw, by the way, was that it was too powerful. Yeah, it encroached on other space, but like they're... It's not that they wanted them to stop working on it. They just like, hey, can we tweak it so it kind of becomes its own thing? I mean, we don't have access to their survey data, but anecdotally, people were like, we like the idea of the class. We just think it needs work. (laughs) Right. And one of my arguments early on was always, why are you using a singer monolithic class to define everything? Of course, I I, I say that as I've done work on it recently. (laughs) Uh Uh You're you're, going to do it better. (laughs) Yeah, but here's the the thing, though, right? My first criticism to the Mystic, even at version 2, was always, why are we sticking to one monolithic class to define an archetype when we know that there have been examples in its past that it can be explained in other archetypes or explained as, like... Soul Knife working into subclasses makes perfect sense, right? You can have psionic dabblers. You can have elements where psionics plays a role, but it's not, and it's a defining feature, but it is not tied into like a singular monolithic entity. So that's why I had no issues with like when you had those kind of elements working in. But for whatever reason, in order to test all those things, instead of like having multiple constant updates, documents, articles to kind of, and they had to put it onto this one singular document and just go, let us know what you think about everything that's in here. Everything. And it's not even about, does this work? It's like, it's really just, what do you think about it? It's like, well, we think it's it's broken. Well, that's not what we're asking you. But that's not, the, that's not our point. It's like, but you don't understand. It's, everything is broken. <laughs> right. There's like a hundred things, if you're looking at, or more in that doc, you're talking about conceptual ideas, specific abilities. There, it's just too much. Like version three, there's like over, uh, there's like close to 15 talents. I didn't even want to count the number of actual psionic powers that exist underneath all the disciplines. There's already like 20 plus disciplines in that document alone. And on top of that, so if we were to ballpark it and assume that every discipline had like five powers because it ranges from three to seven or eight even, like if you were to assume five for each of those disciplines, that's over a hundred psionic powers plus over twenty plus psionic focuses, and then you have close to twenty talents. That is way too much for any mortal to keep track of, especially for a, a like what's supposed to be a new class on all of this, where most of them start with first of all three subclasses that just break down to the different abilities. They're trying to introduce basically. Not just the class as its base form, but also all the other subclasses that they would want to introduce to it, which is usually expanded upon on later. Right. And like to go back to your monolithic point, 
they've shown that they can split it before. Fourth edition had four psionic classes. The scion, the monk, the ardent, and the battle mind. And like you're talking about here, just trying to jam all those abilities into one class just gets untenable. But splitting them into the four, especially, Tony, back to your point of all these subclasses, you you pick one order and then you have your three disciplines, which are subclasses. Yeah, you can easily split it that way. And also having a discipline that gives you so many abilities, is it makes it too complex for someone, especially for someone that's newer to D&D. Right. So I think, Jack, you did a great job uh, of sharing how you broke down. I put reasons for abandonment. Oh, <laughs> of, of why reasons. they left. Yes. <laughs> why they left it. Um, oh, boy. And there's one in particular that jumped out to me as someone who's been playing a mystic, which you pointed out they would need a whole new character sheet redesigned for this character we play uh you know for our podcast in roll 20 um we have done our best to shoehorn the mystic stuff into the spell sheet it doesn't really work super well with enough rigging it's workable (laughs) (laughs) basically whatever the base cost is of the ability we put it under that spell slot but that also could mean it can be it, cast it requires higher. me as a player to do a lot of extra mental work to keep track of things, um, which I'm capable of doing. But it's definitely not something I would ever recommend anyone else do. <laughs> I, I will say, as somebody who does use D&D Beyond pretty affluently, the nice thing about using D&D Beyond is that it does break down action economy because you can literally go into a, a tab where it'll show you what features and abilities use an, an, a regular action, bonus action, or reactions. That is one feature I do admire about D&D Beyond that has always been very useful. Um, I will say that my Ravnica group, we use uh, D&D Beyond. Uh, now, granted, for our Mystic player, we can't use that because there's no way to implement it. Um, so we still use a Roll20 sheet for it, but we use the record keeping for all of the, the, other mater- the other superfluous information in their D&D Beyond sheet. But yeah, it's um, one of the things that I noticed right away was because... I thought about it from a design perspective, I thought, because one of the fundamental uh, philosophies for 5e is that it needs to be accessible to everyone. Uh, That is a fundamental, both a game decision, game design decision, as well as a uh, consumer decision. Uh, So this is to benefit the consumer, which means that the idea is that for wizards, especially, their goal is to go, okay, if you really want to play D&D, you only really need three books. Heck, you really only need one book. And... So you shouldn't need anything else to play D&D. And because of the fact that the Mystic requires a new uh, resource economy, because of that alone, it already made it completely removed from that formula. It made itself already alienated, and it already put itself in a bad position. So because of that, I already knew right away that that was just like, as much as people who've played Psionics across the years with D&D, this really isn't a good way to go. Like... 4E didn't even go back that hard into side points. Like it, it touched on it. Like I think it touched on it, right, Mike? Or no? The closest, the closest was monk. Yeah, that was really the monk. So really, it didn't even touch it in fourth edition. So like, and because of that, I just felt that in the long when I when I was looking back at this, but like just thinking back to it, I went, this is a bad idea. Like side points is really fundamentally just against the entire point of why 5E is designed the way it is. Like, yes, would we like something that's completely different and unique on its own? Yes, of course we do. But if it's going to make it to a point where it's inaccessible in both a digital space and a physical space, I think we just need to toss it. And that's a decision I don't think most people are willing to do because 
there's a part of like a lot of nostalgia for fans that really want it that way, and I get it. I I mean I like nostalgia. I like I do like the fact that points was a cool thing. I used psionics a lot when I was in playing three five, but I'm a, I can understand that this is not a, this this is not going to work in the current framework, and it needs to. And I guess that should have been the first thing to go. Uh, I was wrong. They did use PowerPoints in the psionic classes. They used them to augment base abilities. Ah, okay. So they it wasn't like full on abilities, but it, I remember. I thought I remember it was like the augment or something. Yeah. Okay. So so what would happen is you would have like an encounter power that says like days a target, and if you it would be like augment two. If you pumped two PowerPoints into it, it would like get an additional. But it was rider, really small pool of PowerPoints, wasn't it? It was relatively small, and the writers were limited. It wasn't always just like do a bunch of damage. It was just like one when, when they wake up from being dazed, you know, they have disadvantage on the next attack or something like that, as opposed to just like raw mathematical punch them really hard. I'm sure there was at least one or two of those, though. Oh yeah, no, definitely, probably. But. Well, and they do have points for you know we talked about key points, so there are points already in the game. But the the scaling of the points to abilities is the only way to do anything. Certainly requires you to work outside of the existing framework. So I, I agree with you there. It is extra work that I'm willing to put in as a player because I knew going into it I would be doing this extra work, <laughs> and that it was playtest material. And I but I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. What I recommend, I, I I like playing this thing. I think it's fun, but I don't know that I would tell anyone else if you're looking for a, something to play in a campaign. I'd be like, yes, go play the UA Mystic <laughs> version three for a campaign. And that's the other issue, right? It's like when you can't even recommend the class, no matter how much somebody might be interested. Yeah, because even nowadays, like we can recommend to people playing spellcasters the very first time they're playing. Now, yes, it's a little we we do forewarn them. Yes, there's still a bit more bookkeeping than as opposed to some of the other characters classes, but it's not as inaccessible as in previous incarnations of D&D where spellcasters was very inaccessible because there was just so much bookkeeping and now there's le- there's is just just enough right i still don't advise new players to play wizards <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because understanding the difference between preparing spells and spontaneous spellcasting is still the, a- the, the conceptual the, stuff is extra work when you're just trying to get the basics. I'm I'm like, play a sorcerer. You're just good at magic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you want to do a caster, sorcerer is the way to go for it, for sure. Yeah. So I think you really did a good job breaking down kind of where things went wrong in this particular version from previous versions. And I know you also put in here, incorporating multiple concepts into the Mystic Class Umbrella alienated the core structure. So it really is just, uh, there's a bit of everything. They didn't want anyone to feel like there was any Mystic ability, I guess, that you could want that's not there, or they put every single one in the document that they came up with. None of it's being left out, so we'll give you all of it. Right, and unless you decide to to focus on, I'm just going to be a certain kind of Mystic, you can be every kind of Mystic by level 10 (laughs) that you possibly want and be... A master of physical combat and mental combat and subterfuge all at the same time. Um, therefore, making yourself maybe not as strong in any one of those things as the other classes, but getting the benefits almost like you've multiclassed without having to have any different stats, which is a little unfair. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just felt that for a lot of it, like I can understand some of the, the orders at least for like the immortal, the awakened, you know, those those made sense because they were they were they were meant to be played with specific archetypes in mind. Okay, sure. But then when you started going in now and we understand that the soul knife eventually was good was just something that was just like how do you feel about the soul knife more lo- more more less so here's the soul knife in the mystics like no 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 this is more like a teaser to see how you feel about it. We we get that. 
Then you go into the Wujin, which is its own bag of of worms. We we're talking about your design choices. So Jackie, tell us tell us your feelings and thoughts on the Wujin. So the Wujin are for those who don't know, are conceptually a a spellcasting class that was that started back in Oriental Adventures, and we're talking like AD&D era, so second edition. Asian represents has uh, you can follow their podcast. They have done extensive work on the on a lot of the issues about Oriental Adventures. I'm not going to spend the entire uh, show talking about it. Look into it if you want to. Uh, but the most important thing is that the Wu Zhen comes from a place that it, it basically emphasizes a point of Orientalism that. Basically, I just felt like, why are we bringing it here? And the way they even introduced it as these mystics, it's like, you're you're basically now codifying mysticism with this Oriental-esque or Asian-identifying part, and I'm just like, why do we need to do this? Well, especially when the actual nature of those abilities didn't really click with it at all. It felt shoehorned in. I will say that I have no understanding of someone's intentions of that design. Like... The, if you look at the rest of the framework, though, it feels like it should have, like, it's like this weird spellcaster and psionic, like, melder because they had the ability to dabble into spell, wizard spells and stuff like that. Realistically, if you look at what conceptually it was trying to be, it wanted to be the elemental kineticist. Basically, your, your cytokineticist, your, your pyrokineticist, all of those elemental types, but they didn't want to make it sound plain for whatever reason, which I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. An elemental kineticism as a catch-all, like, subclass made more sense than, you know... Firebender wasn't enough. <laughs> Maybe they just didn't want to reuse the Manser-like bit at the end repeatedly. This is a Pyromancer. This is an Aquamancer. Yes, yes. So they decided to go, I guess, with the, the next uh, easiest thing to make it feel special, I guess, is your point, in a way. And, and the thing is, again, because, like, Wu Zhen, so when we were talking about earlier about taboos and stuff, like, Wu Zhen's canonically in, from Oriental Adventures onward, has elements to their core uh, ca- class where they talk about taboo. Uh, they basically, when they're Wu Zhen, they have uh, these taboos that they need to instill, which is similar to the quirks, oddly enough, uh, that these are things they follow, and they, and for, but Wu Zhen, mechanically, in AD&D and in 3.5, uh, they would actually, it's basically like if they violate these taboos, they ha- run the risk of losing their ability to be the caster. Like temporarily or? For 3-5, it's the same way as a paladin basically not being lawful good. They have to be, uh, they have to be atoned. They have to go through the ritual. They have to pay money, the XP, all the finagery of that. Despite the fact that this is not a, a class or set of abilities are supposed to be tied to a power source that has, you know, rules. It's just your your quirk. If you don't follow that quirk, you're punished. Yeah, that was how it was in for the Wu Gen in three five, and also in AD&D. Yeah, so we can see they kept elements of that in this light lighter elements, more where it's like a fun. Well, because five E's design like, is no longer like we don't want to punish you for bad choices. <laughs> it's more just like, hey, we recommend your druid, <laughs> no, not wear metal. I think it's good to, to shift over to talk about kind of what you're doing different in your version, which uh, I know is a work in progress, but you're looking forward to publishing down the road and we'll definitely share when it's available. Oh, yeah. So when I was looking back at designing the Mystic, because when uh, you all reached out to me about doing the Mystic, I, wa- I couldn't resist pulling up all the notes that I had from since 2018 about the Mystic and how much I either loved it or hated it or all the things in between. Some of those uh, notes have changed in terms of my perspective because I've had more time to think about it. 
But I would say that like one of the big things is trying to make it fit into the 5e framework as opposed to making it completely its own thing. Now, I, I know a lot of people who are... F- who are very nostalgic to the, to psionics are going to feel that you know that that just removes the identity of it, and that was one of the big things of me going back looking at the mystic and psionics in general and kind of going, all right, what is definitive about psionics? What defines the class that makes it different from it's just a wizard with a weird kind of magic or a monk with a weird kind of magic? <laughs> right. So it's like what defines the class? What also defines the archetype of psionics in general versus? traditional spellcasting like what makes them different and a lot of it was looking back a lot of them actually got integrated into spellcasting already like in 35 uh because i know tony's been looking into a lot of the 35 material because i sent you a lot of the 35 material um like one of the biggest things even actually if you look at even at 4e one of the biggest things was augmenting or powering up a psionic power basically casting uh, manifesting because it's not casting it's manifesting your power at a higher point or investing more side points into or power points or side points into it. And that was like the big thing that made um, Psionics very versatile in 3.5 versus spellcasting in 3.5. And now you look at 5e, you can now cast spells at higher cast spell slots. That's already a thing. That's already integrated. That was like a, that was like one of the biggest arguments for 3.5 Psionics versus regular spellcasting that got automatically integrated in. That was the first thing I thought of when I first saw 5e. When I first saw 5e and I started reading spells, I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> and so that was like one big thing that I went, okay, does that design, uni- that part of the uniqueness of Sionics is killed right there. That I'm going to cross this off this list. And then the other big thing was, okay, Sionics in a lot of older editions was it doesn't use the traditional components of spellcasting. Like, you don't chant, you don't use somatic components. And for the most part, you don't use material components. Right. You just think really hard. We get away with so much because there are no tells on the psionic abilities. Which Tony decided he liked narratively as a DM. I like narratively. And I've told you also, there are a few tells. The only ones are the ones that require you to telepathically communicate with the target. People do notice if they hear something in their head. That's true. Well, here's the thing. If they make the save, you still are telepathically communicating with them and they're aware of it. But, like, Jackie, I know in your design, you specifically have these manifestations, like, whether they're visual or auditory. That's something that uh, I brought back from 3.5. 3.5 had these things called displays, which are, how does the power look when it's manifesting? And they actually touch on the senses, for the most part, or something material. So it covered audio, visual, olfactory, material, and mental. Now, mental is basically like voices in your head, images, stuff like that. But material was the big one because that it literally would identify that there has to be a material element that you must touch or c- interact with. And because I can include that rule, that element, that means I can now include details about the material inside the power details. That kind of fixes some of the material power distribution issues with how psionics has been treating with material components of everything else. And it does make sense because mnemonics and mnemonic devices are useful for just remembering something, and that would help in directing your mental energies too for a psionicist. Yep. I started going back to looking at older design and understanding some of the principles behind their choices, and then looking at how some of them could translate how some and what, what was important, what wasn't. And then I look back at the feedback from the third version. And so 
I, I looked back and I thought, okay, so one of the big criticisms is the fact that it's way too complicated. There's many, too many things. And so when I did that, I went, okay, let's look at the complication of an actual spellcaster in 5e. How complicated is the most complicated one of them? That, particularly speaking, wizard and also potentially warlock. Warlock is complicated in the sense that there's more passive abilities than there are active abilities. And wizard has the most active abilities versus compared to a lot of other classes. Well, Wizard and Cleric are relatively the same in certain degrees. So they're because they're full casters and they can do a lot of stuff. But like when you look at it, it's like, okay, assuming optimization, so you're, that means having an intelligence of plus five modifier, you can prepare up to 25 spells as a wizard at 20th level. So I looked at that and I went, okay, so that's the, that's the benchmark right there. That's the ceiling that I need to not either exceed or get close to, I can get close to it, but I can never exceed this number. So I looked at that design and I went, okay, because the disciplines are so despairingly varying in the, in terms of, its gir- of their girths, because like I said before, multiple times, uh, it's anywhere from three powers to eight to ten, nine. So I went, okay, the design choice is there can only be three psionic powers underneath every discipline. Which I think is reasonable. I mean, honestly, that, that get, that's robust enough that you have options, especially if they each have a distinct flavor. Because right now, in the you know third version for UA, there's a lot of redundancy and a lot of repetition. So you could cut a lot of those. <laughs> and that's the other thing, too. Like, um, I went, because of those redundancies and the disciplines, I went, why don't we make the disciplines the focal point, as, sh- as they always should be, and focus on that? Make the powers unique and specific and make it so that they matter. So that they, there shouldn't be too many redundancies. They can do similar effects, but they but they work differently. Yeah, and I like the idea that what, for me, defines playing a mystic is being able to do unique things that just are not available to you. It's not that you're getting the powers earlier or that they're stronger, better, though we have seen that that does happen in the current version. But the ones that are, this is a special thing you get to do. It's interesting, it might be strange, or it might have very specific applications, but it's what lets you lean into that kind of creative problem solving, which is, I think is what makes you want to play a mystic at all, is I just want to approach things differently. And some of those are good. Like the Nomad Mystic stuff is actually really phenomenal. It's but some really of them, fun. <laughs> I mean, the only issue is that some of them working together are very abusable. That's the, that is the only concern. Um, that is one of the concerns. But I will say like overall, flavorfully, like they're just one of my favorite combinations of, of disciplines because they let you do so many things. Well, and it feels different from other class experiences right now in D&D, which I think is what we're saying. The Mystic needs to be. It has to be different in play and thematically, but not too different. <laughs> I actually did, while we're talking about like the actual class as opposed to the disciplines, the way you broke out the subclasses was interesting because you broke them out by temperament and then you tied those temperaments to stats. Yes. I was just going to say, is that an old uh, design choice based off of previous edition? No, that was actually me being a psychologist. You're like, if it's about brain stuff, let's make it about brain stuff. <laughs> And what's interesting to me is that you have this opportunity for this temperament to also act as like a secondary bond. Yes. It drives how you play this character. And was, was that your thought behind? That was my entire design intent was, as much as I love the idea of Mystic Orders, I just felt that it was just unnecessary. Like, I was like, look, you can have a cloister of mystics of different backgrounds, walks of life, belief systems, whatever. So I don't see the point of having like this, mon- again, this monolithic 
order of for you that identifies you. It's like, I'm just not a fan of those. It, it just doesn't fit. Playing a mystic is all about your personal journey, your character's personal journey as a mystic. It's never been about who you belong to. Yeah, you can belong to an order, but the point is, like, your identity shouldn't be tied to that. Because you're a PC. Right. You're defined by your experiences. And I went back to something really core about how how I've always played mystics, which was mystics are always going to be tied to how they behave. Their decisions are tied to that, and their manifestations of their psionic powers is tied to the way they uh, their emotions, their feelings, their their cognitive processes. And and if you look back in some of the older uh, psionic stuff, that's how they did approach it as well. Because you had the erudite from complete psionics, which was like the scholarly scion. The ardent was focused on archetypes, like they had they they were like I'm the embodiment of justice and temperament. Like in, from, and then you have like the divine mind who was like I have gained a psionic awareness through my faith, whether it be an actual faith or just me having faith in things. And then you had the Wilder from original Sonic stuff, which was like the Wilder was like this entity tied in with chaos, um, which I kind of tied in more with passions and, and things like that. And the Psychic Warrior was more about like this tacticalness to, that kind of defined their, their, their skill set. And so it's like, okay, if we look at it that way, we should approach it as the, how does the mystic approach life? And so I'd said, why don't we just go with what works? Temperaments. So I went and did some personal research on temp- on temperaments because it's been a hot minute since I've looked back in any of my so- my psychology research. Most people are familiar with four elements of of the temperaments, which is the four which is the four humors. Now there has been extensive research in the last couple of years about a fifth temperament: sanguine, choleric, phlegmatic, uh, melancholic, and what's the new one? The new one. I don't think they've given it a name. They just acknowledge that it's there's a fifth one. And it's kind of like the, uh, if you ever see the emoji face where it's like flat eye lines, flat mouth line, that's the fifth one. <laughs> okay. The- if you go and Google about the temperaments, there's, there are pictures about like using emoji faces to kind of, kind of relate to all of them. And again, it's all about how you approach and respond. It's because the whole bit of the temperaments is all about expression and response. Oh, it's called, um, Luquin, I think is what it's called. So I think it, when I was reading about this in your document, it did also make me think about when you see those Myers-Briggs charts where it's like, which Harry Potter character are you based on your Myers-Briggs? Uh, I think it's a similar, you could apply a similar thing here where it's just a way of breaking out, you know, what sort of brain <laughs> your character has. And I, I liked especially because I read this, I was like, oh, I still know where my mystic would fit in this version because you have a reason intelligence version. I was like, yep, that's my character who's like, I'm good at brain stuff because I just think logically <laughs> and uh and it's that simple so i think that's a strength of what you have here is that it still works with kind of why i think people would play mystics so without losing anything from what draws you to it especially since now you're away from the order discipline link you can still have those unique specializations that you were talking about bethany while also you know living out your best scion Right. And I know, Jackie, you were saying one of the things you're looking for here is specialization, not general abilities. Because right now, it's you can be a heck of a generalist as a mystic. I told Tony I wasn't going to do that to him. I want my character to be, I do the thing, <laughs> this one thing, which is just mental manipulation. And if that doesn't work, I hurt people with my brain. I'm just doing that. It's a really good trick, though. 
It works very well and causes a lot of uh, potential to avoid combat, which is what is built for. That was the idea. But I think it's right to say most classes expect you to be a specialist. You've chosen this class because you're specializing in something, an approach, uh, a set of skills, a belief system, something like that, instead of it being... You do whatever you want, honey. Like, you're just great at thinking. <laughs> I will say that that was one of the, I don't know if that was a was an oversight or anything like that. Or if it's just because they put all the abilities in there and they're like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> I can't tell what the, where it fell in that category, but I know in the third version of the Mystic, like, first of all, most of them gave you two free disciplines at level one. When I first read that, I went, why would you do that? Here's um, 10 or more abilities off the bat. Yeah, exactly. And so that was like, I was like, why would you torment somebody like that? When you see the list of disciplines that they had at the time, it's like you you almost saw like there was a design, there was like a shift in design where somebody went, we should only have disciplines that they only know and that's it. And, that sh- and part of me went, why couldn't they have just only learned those disciplines and made it really unique? Because... I know in three five there was a there's been there was criticism about psionics for at least like like the scion for example that if you chose you had to choose a specific discipline for three five psionics it was only disciplines were more like schools of magic instead of like suites of power uh, which is how I treat them here they're more like suites of abilities and features and so because there was only six disciplines like psionics uh, a scion would choose that discipline and they would be permanently the specialist for it and they would be barred from learning disciplines from the other powers from the other disciplines which was a very 3-5 design choice okay that's a so if anyone's trying to understand why that was a choice that's that was like the basic framework of 3-5 wizards had their spell school and then like the school that they were banned from i think you actually had to ban two there was like a modified um, class feature. Uh, it was called optional class feature, where you could end up taking us. You can be even a better specialist, but all, but at the cost of having your third band school. Which, by the way, that was busted. I've used that so many times. I was really good with that. You're saying there were a lot of uh, potential loopholes there to, to optimize. Oh yeah, I can believe it. I saw there's some things you definitely want to keep or that you put here, which was to like fully utilize the action economy, which I think is one of the most fun things about playing the class is I tend to, as a player, be drawn to classes with good use of the action economy. That's why it's always so fun to take a couple levels in rogue, you know, even if you're not going to be a rogue. (laughs) So you decide you want to keep that for the mystic, which I I think is interesting. I thought it was a great implementation because... I've watched the feedback from people who've played D&D 5e from the vanilla classes, the core 12, and then eventually moving into Artificer. And if you look at the Artificer, the Artificer is starting to add more complexity by having more action economy usage. But the original PHB stuff, it's very cut and dry. There's very few abilities that implement the reaction. Almost everything revolves around action. And only most of the time it's class features that use bonus action, with a few exceptions being spells. And... Of course, they didn't want to make spells broken like in 3.5 because there was a lot of excessive use of bonus action or slap, swift action, as they used to be called in uh, 3.5, um, where the, a lot of the really some of the nice spells in swift action. And we were like, I get a lot for a swift action. And so they locked it down for 5e where they're like, even if you can cast two spells, you cannot cast two level nine spells, uh, except for unless you do something. Sp- but, but otherwise, no, you, you can't. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> 
even in Raw, right, it's supposed to be you can only really cast one real spell if you cast it as, a, as an action, and if you manage to cast a second spell as a bonus action, it would only be at a cantrip. And I was like, so why did we not make the same decision when it came to psionics? Yeah, they're, they're like, they're like, do whatever you want. <laughs> Just spend your points. <laughs> so I was kind of like, you know, there's some, there was a little bit of a disconnect here. And for me, I just felt that it just felt as if there was just more attention put into bringing back the nostalgia and less about making sure it fits. Make sure it actually works for 5e and has any kind of balance. But yeah, I will say like the action economy piece, I don't regret that part. I know Tony's fixed the ability strength and taken some out, but we have kept basically what's an action, a bonus action, and a reaction just because it gives you stuff you can do, especially if you're not going for full power, it makes you a helpful team member because you can do some things, you know, on your turn besides just, I hurt people with my mind and then I wait. Especially if you have to come across enemies who are, you know, like immune to charm. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was one ability that I actually didn't say what kind of ability or what kind of action economy it was that we had to pick something because they just forgot to mention it. It just is like you do you do a thing. (laughs) It it wasn't it wasn't an action economy thing. It was the um, you roll one D six of uh, psychic damage. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> no like, attack roll, no save. We're like, so it's like, um, okay. What? No. no. <laughs> okay. That was part of that was one of the things that felt sloppy, unfinished. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the thing about playtest uh, documents. They, that that can happen a lot. Especially when um as a person who does design work, I can tell you that as a designer, you sometimes approach your concept or your whatever you're writing at different stages at different times. And sometimes when you stop, you forget why you wrote certain things the way they they were, because it happens, and that's why editors exist, and we should always appreciate our editors. But I can tell that like this, that a lot of elements of it just really felt like it was really hodgepodged together. Um, because you like if you look at the 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 version three document, right? When you start looking at like the list of disciplines, how at first it's like okay, there's a lot, and then you're like okay, but why are some disciplines having more more options than others? Like, did we stop thinking about other options? Was did it based on level of interest about this particular one? It doesn't. There's not a single unifying vision for this is how this will play in the game. That's certainly not how they approached it based on what we're seeing, which is what you're trying to bring to it in your version is, who is the mystic and how would you actually play it? <laughs> As opposed to, I have a list of more ideas <laughs> for you to consider. <laughs> Like you have, there has to be a level of design intent, and I mean, it has to be a little bit more focused. So, if anyone who's ever been curious about like doing like mechanical design work for a game, my one advice is always: it's not just a matter of intent of design intent. Like, why? What is this for? Why are you designing it? It's also a matter of how does it work with everything else you're doing. And there is a little bit of discourse regarding about, you know, whether things need to be play tested, whatever. Yes, those things do need to be done sometimes. But I will say that, like, if you can at least put some level of thoughtfulness about how things interact with one another, as everyone here has listed, like, I wrote, I wrote out my design goals. Top of the document. On the top of the document to keep me on the line, because sometimes when you're in the middle of designing, you go through a power craze and you just start going. And when it goes, you don't know where you're going, and sometimes you need to have that roadmap. Guiding principles. Yeah, because sometimes you you do forget why you're doing something, and you're like, why am I doing it this way? Oh, right, because of this. 
So you, so you need to be able to check yourself too, is what you're saying. Like, wh- why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I, I will say that like some of these I haven't, I may still not do. Like um, I wrote here like about creating a generic zero power level powers list. Not sure if I'm going to really commit to that because when I'm looking at like the way I'm structuring disciplines now, I'm like, maybe I don't need it because I kind of gotten some ideas about how I wanted to approach the discipline design. And I went, oh, maybe I really don't need this, but it's good to have. Like, it's like I said, you don't have to follow through with everything that you put out on a roadmap, but this should at least be your guiding principles. These should be the things that guide you, should at least give you an idea of where you're going. And sometimes it's also good to reflect on it and go, wow, this idea went totally different than what I expected. And you can be excited and happy about that. So thank you, Jackie, for joining us. This was incredibly helpful. You have so much knowledge, not just on this class, but of, you know, design in general. So thank you for talking through it. And we look forward to seeing your version, which I think you said, hopefully will be on drive through RPG down the road. I don't know where I'm going to end up putting that this thing, but you can always follow me on Twitter and you will know when it comes out. As Bethany and Tony and Mike, you all have seen it. It's lengthy. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. So I guess final advice. I've heard everything you said, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think maybe I still want to play a mystic. What What do we tell them? Do we tell them yes, no, with caveats? Brace yourself. Oh, definitely with caveats. I was going to say, it, for a show with rules as written, I would not play the mystic as written. No. <laughs> Needs a li- little bit of tender loving care. Work with your DM if you're planning on playing a mystic. Ask your DM if they're willing to do the work <laughs> with you. It's a lot of work, by the way. DMs out there, it is a lot of work, but if you put the hours in. As a DM, just to other DMs out there, do not make an NPC mystic. <laughs> just, just don't. Stop. Don't as, do a, it. I, I, as also a DM, I will tell you, uh, NPC mystics, just... Enjoy all those sheets of paper. My my recommendation is you pick one or two disciplines. That's it. The powers you want to use in those disciplines, and then the, done. Yeah, no, that, done I agree. That. That's the same way. Don't don't even add more. Just two or three. That's probably your limit, and that's it. I made the mistake of building full out NPC mystics the same way that you would build spellcaster NPCs, and I'm like. You said, I have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Wait, you built out full on NPC characters? Tony always builds full NPC characters. Wow. So Roll20 has the, the NPC stat blocks that you can just build out. However, I just, I'm like, well, I can, uh, I've saved a bunch of the mystic powers that Belinda has. So I'll just drag and drop a lot of them into the new. And I'm like, I've got like 30 <laughs> powers. Yeah, that's the problem. Like I said, that was the, that's the issue, right? It's because there's too many. We'll have to share, I guess, maybe a link to like what just a screen capture of my roll 20 power sheet looks like. <laughs> oh, the fun one is just you just see the names of the abilities. Wait till you expand what I like. So. <laughs> oh. Keeps me visually on my game. So thank you guys. Great discussion as yeah. always. Uh, we look forward to, you know, the next episode. It's good to be back. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So. Clearly, you have a lot of work ahead of you, you and the, you know, two other admins, but you have to have at least some time to play games still, right? Yep, I still have time to play games, surprisingly enough. I'm still surprised. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your favorite that you've been playing with recently? So at the last quarter of 2020, I was GMing on our All Nerds Hero channel, uh, so uh, because I'm one of the cast members there. And so I GM'd a City of Mist game. 
I, I always love noir. Noir is one of my favorite uh, genres. Um, so we did a neon noir uh, story. So in City of Mist, you're basically, it's a supernatural noir. So you are normal mortals who get, who awaken a uh, mythical figure or entity inside of you and they become a, ve- and you become a vessel for it. Yeah, they're like archetypes that you can channel, right? Yeah, you're, they're archetypes. So you can literally have someone who's the embodiment of Excalibur. You can have someone who's the embodiment of King Arthur. You can have someone who's the embodiment of like any kind of mythical figure you can imagine, or even a urban legend, or or just like a concept too. Like you said, noir. You could be channeling the archetype of the noir detective, just like that guy, and you have a monologue in the whole thing. We, yeah. we know he's Humphrey Bogart. You can you can. Yeah. Call him. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one. He's, There's only he's one. He's a mysterious stranger. What are you talking about? So you're DMing? Yeah, so I'm 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 GMing the whole thing. Um, we had our cast. I loved it a lot. Um, we had somebody who was a PI who has the mythos of uh, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, we had a grad student who was the the mythos of uh, the Scottish Wolver, which is basically a benevolent anthropomorphic wolf because they're not really werewolves. They don't really shift. But a lot of people refer to them as the Scottish werewolf, but it's like wolvers are not really werewolves. But well, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> You're like, we're splitting werewolf hairs at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Werewolf lore. Werewolf lore. <laughs> Anyways, so um, and then we had um, we had somebody who was the mythos, who's a, uh, a doc worker, who's the mythos for Babe Ruth. That one was a lot of fun because that was so because when you think about when you think about a, a, a game that says mythical figure, everyone likes to go like the really deep end of like mythology, religion, or somewhere in between, right? And what do we get? An iconic sports legend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Mythos of Rocky Balboa would be funny. Yeah, so yeah. That- <laughs> and the fact that the, the wonderful thing about that system is it really does lend into, like, it can be anything. It really reinforces that, but uh, I know that the the general line of thought most people go is like religious or mythological figure. And what I and I and I was so happy to have somebody who just went a little bit more grounded and just went, I want a sports legend. <laughs> so what what is it specifically about? Is it just the freedom that it gives the players? Like, yeah, you could you could have Babe Ruth alongside the manifestation of Excalibur, or yeah, exactly. You can literally have that. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, and we also had a a nurse who was uh, the mythos for uh, Zipitotec, which is the, I believe, the Aztec god of uh, death and rebirth. And we had a wide range of, of, of mythos and characters. And I will say that for season one, um, I had a lot of fun with that. We definitely ended season one on a cliffhanger because, um, as I learned... Um, 12 episodes is not enough to tell a entire season's worth of a noir mega mega plot <laughs> with characters who have very different goals and hopes and dreams and need to yeah. come together. <laughs> yep. Yep, and trying to and and weaving all that connected using the cases as a as an undertone storytelling medium to tell the overarching story. <laughs> so, it was a lot of challenges uh for me as a storyteller uh cuz I've done something like that before, but to do it on a shorter time scale was a lot harder. But I still enjoyed it. I still had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we might revisit it one day for a season two, but for now we're moving. We are go- we are doing other things because we have other interests and things like that. But we might visit revisit it one day. Uh, the cast still remembers their loves their characters very much. 
Um, and they really do want to know like how I will bring all the rest of the, the meta plot in for that. So you clearly loved that campaign. And in the two years, right, since you've been on the podcast, I'm sure you've played a bunch of other games too? Oh, yes. Yes, I have. I did play uh, a short campaign for uh, Blades in the Dark, which I love Blades in the Dark. Love Blades in the Dark. <laughs> I loved Blades in the Dark on paper before I even played it. So I I didn't really, it wasn't a stretch for me to love it more when <laughs> when I actually played it. I'm always trying to sell people on Blades in the Dark. <laughs> well, we did that one Scum and Villainy game, too. That was pretty fun. I love oh, Scum yeah. and Villainy. I, I actually I also... Mean, what's not to love? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually love some of the ideas also in, ba- in Band of Blades. Um, some, of the con- like the, some of the concepts for it. I really like it. And I think it kind of changes how I want to approach some other co- ideas with Blades if I ever decide to do hacks and stuff for it. So... Of all the games that you were playing in the past two years, what was like your peak top moment, player or DM? I think my peak one. So we also, so on All Nerds here, we also do a show called PWN Live, which is our worldwide wrestling RPG show. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and we, and ours is set in uh, Vancouver, Washington, in the mid ninety in the mid nineties. So peak like nostalgia for all of us who are in this channel for our for our, our upbringing. Yeah, brother. All right. Yeah, so we had uh so we ran a so we ran like an alternate universe where basically, you know, all the other elements of wrestling of wrestling world exist, but we have our own indie circuit, our own big promotion. And so in within so we we ran two seasons of this. I will say that the fan our our channel's uh fans and audience still want us to come back for a season 3. Um it's that it's that well beloved. I will say that my fa- my favorite moment has to have been so I introduced an, a, a a new wrestler. Uh, their name was After Dark, which what which is a character that's basically imagine the Terminator plus Daft Punk plus um, Ghost Rider. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> not where I thought. No, no, it was no. Going. We should have seen that coming. It was a natural progression. <laughs> <laughs> That's so rad. So I had a wrestler that was called After Dark, right? And basically, one of their one of their finishers was basically sending you through cyberspace, which is a great little gimmick. And this is the funniest thing, right? So, like, season one was more like what you expect for a wrestling show, where it's just very corny, very like you're, you're you know, very you can very tell from from a certain standpoint that it's like this is not really as real as you claim it to be. And then we moved into the point, the realm of well, we have a time traveler now. We have a car- we have a wrestler who ex- who's literally emerged out of a TTRPG book, and then we had a character who, <laughs> and then we have my character After Dark, <laughs> and it's just like you're, we're like, okay, we kind of upped the the scale, the ante, <laughs> the yeah. ante a little no. bit. So one of the other one of the season one characters uh, was wrestling After Dark, and we decided to do the stipulation, uh, the match stipulation set in a junkyard. And in Warwide Wrestling, uh, the uh, the creative, who is the GM, will declare at some point during the match uh, who is booked to win the match. So they're booked to win, but that doesn't mean that we can't alter the results. So because just like in most uh, fixed fights th- scenarios, you know, er- someone's booked to win, but things can change. And so my character was actually booked to win. And the other character, Ron Sterling, decided to uh, change the outcome of that. And basically did a heel move 
And then part of the finisher to defeat After Dark was to actually t- pull out a Tommy gun from the trunk of one of these junk cars <laughs> and just of hail a bullet <laughs> After Dark. And, everyone, and we were all like, what just happened? <laughs> listen, if you're going to heal turn, listen, wow. some people pull out a chair. For for the heel no, turn, no 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 chair chairs the no. chair chairs we've got potatoes. time travelers and the tur- and the musical terminator nah not good enough the wor- the funniest bit was that this was only one of twenty six other after darks so like you know just killing one was not enough <laughs> it's like a terminator he just keeps coming back so what you're saying is it's fun just to embrace the silliness sometimes and just oh, like yeah. go for it there, the so way. so we uh, the running joke on that show is that our creative Kate um, doesn't actually do doesn't have any method of control in our game at all um, there is no control it's just chaos 100% all the time that sounds like a, it'd be really fun to watch and now we have to put it on our oh, list yeah. uh, season one I introduced the culinary uh, the culinary parody of the Ro- of the rock call the cook. <laughs> Season two, he proposed to his boyfriend. <laughs> I hope they're doing well. <laughs> I will find out. <laughs> so yeah, I love that show. That's our. F- that was actually where we started. All nerds was with uh with PWN, and then we've moved on to other channels and other. We've moved on to like other shows as well because we also have like another. We have another casting group as well with us. So there's enough casting for two shows. So we do two different shows uh, on a weekly basis uh, during the seasons. Uh, so right now, this season, which is our season three, so for future people, go watch our VODs. We are doing, <laughs> so we are now doing, um, Corazon Station, which is basically, um, a Passions de, de la Passions TTRPG actual play, but set, but th- basically think of telenovela, telenovela. In, <laughs> in, in, on a space station. As of the time of this recording, we had our we had just did our our season premiere for both shows. So our Sunday sh- our new Sunday show now is we're basically doing our uh, it's a puppet TTRPG actual play uh, where my puppet Jerry is playing a TTRPG. I'm not playing; it's Jerry. So Jerry's playing a TTRPG. They're playing for the dungeon, which is basically a TTRPG where you're playing as the minions of the evil bad person. So where so okay so he's playing the game, playing the minions. Who are you? Or do you exist in in the? Meta, I'm just the. Or? I just. I'm sometimes the helper. I sometimes exist. I don't really exist. Okay, gotcha. You're, so you're almost like a, a dude playing a dude playing a TTRPG <laughs> as a puppet, <laughs> as a minion, as a, as a minion. <laughs> yes, we're a minion. For, they're they're playing as minions for an evil bad person, and um, basically we t- we kind of did the setting where it's modern day, but with fantasy existing. There's a up, there's above world and below world. So all the evil, the quote unquote evil entities live in below world. And that's where our characters normally reside. And we have to do ex, uh, uh, we have to sometimes scout or raid the, uh, the, the surface world. And also we have to kick out adventurers, uh, whenever they come and visit our dungeon. Pesky adventurers. Those pesky adventurers. So problematic. They're relentless. They're relentless. This is very true. So. It's been great. Uh, we had our fir- our season premieres for those shows. Uh, they've been very good. We've had pretty modest uh, numbers for our first viewers, so I'm very happy about that. And um, I will say that it I can only imagine the chaos that will ensue. 